All right, we begin a new series today. It's going to be three weeks long. I'm really excited about this series, Exponential. I want to just begin by saying this. Machines have a lot of moving parts. Movements have a lot of moving people. Exponential movements have so much movement, so much faster, so much growth that it, it, it really surprises. It's far beyond the expectation of all the moving parts of the people in a movement. And I want to just say that from the very beginning of the epicenter of events with Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and the beginning of this movement of Jesus... It has been an exponential movement, and it has been far outside of the expectations and the patterns and what people thought it was going to look like, and it is an exponential movement. It is outpaces human leaders, and it's not a movement that is organized by people. It's a movement that's held together by the unimaginable orchestration of the divine spirit who invades the lives of countless parts moving in ways that we can never predict how this piece connects with this piece and this person with this person and this movement just exploded into a powerful, not only individual changing movement, but culture-changing movement. I'm really excited about the movement that's taking place today, right here, right now, in Cottonwood. But I want to talk generally first, just to kind of set the tone and help us to understand what is taking place. And so this series is going to be three parts, and we're going to be taking a look at a description of patterns of movements that has been described in Scripture in Acts chapter 1 this week, and Acts chapter 2 next week in Acts chapter 3, the week after that. But we're actually looking at whole pictures, and so we're dipping into those and seeing patterns, and I'm very excited to show those patterns to you. Now, in the 1500s, after Christ, there was a movement called the Reformation. And the Reformation was a sweeping movement that was a correction of some errors within the movement of the followers of Christ. And this sweeping correction was an, a correction of errors as it related to creeds, that is, our doctrines and what we believe. Now, a church is made up of followers of Jesus, and followers of Jesus aren't a church because we all agree unanimously on the creeds. We're not followers of Jesus because we unanimously agree on the doctrines of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus because we began following Jesus and we're drawn to him. He is the center of our lives and the center of our movement. But a reformation needed to take place because there were so many errors in the move that needed to be corrected. We are in a new movement. And this new movement is a reformation, not of creeds, but a reformation of deeds. The church got so comfortable with agreement upon creeds that they defined themselves by this agreement. And churches began to identify with themselves as people who agree on what we believe. And with the identification, we begin to identify ourselves with the holy huddle with which we 
identified ourselves with. But here's the problem with the holy huddle. If that's how you view yourself, and you never actually move the ball down the field, it's not a movement, and it is not even a team. It's a holy huddle, and it's outside of the purview of an exponential movement of God. And so we need a new reformation. Now, it's nothing new, because if it was really new, like most new things, eventually it's called not a reformation, but a cult. And so we need nothing new. We need all that is true, and it's in Jesus. But as we follow Jesus, and we start to self-correct, the things that we know to be true, that really we're followers of Jesus and need to live like Jesus, and that is the movement that will change the world, now we start seeing things happening outside of the holy huddle. We're not identified by buildings and creeds and meetings. We're identified by the life of Jesus in our actions and in our attitudes, and then it's contagious. We're moving because we're revolving our lives around this good news, which we just adore, and this good news is what we promote because we are experiencing the reality of a movement of God. And so I'm very excited to talk, to talk about the, the movement of God. Now, as we continue, though, I want to talk about something that we don't normally think about, that in every movement of God, there is a natural resistance, and there is also a supernatural resistance. Now, let me talk about the natural resistance first. Humanly speaking, we tend to not like movements because movements are faster than we want them to be, they're bigger than we want them to be, and they cause change. And most people don't like change. And most people don't like the bigger and the faster, the traffic and the lines and the difficulty in finding seats and how things are changing so rapidly. I don't like how it is now. I like how it used to be. And those are natural resistances that are built into every move of God. If you'll study the movements of God, you'll see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. The people that resisted the move of God most were the people that were so-called the godly people, the people who were religious, the people who liked it the way it was in the box where it was controlled by human leaders and expected to remain the same, and yet God was busting apart the box and making a move take place, and it was now starting to look messy. And so for the religious people, they began to attack the movement, and there's this natural resistance within them to identify how it looks wrong. And some of the first things I identified is, look at all these people that are gathered. It's obviously they don't love God. Look at their lives. They're all messed up. And yet, now we start talking about something that's more than natural. We start to see a supernatural resistance to the move of God because there is a hidden enemy to the move of God that I believe is hidden behind such sentiments. Jesus would look on a crowd with compassion. Jesus would almost single-handedly be a hospital for a broken hurting, sinful people, inviting and welcoming. He was almost single-handedly a counseling center who, with compassion, is beginning to heal with looks and approval and acceptance and invitation and, 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 and opening arms to this broken, thirsty world, hungering for grace 
and hope. And yet, godly people, listening to the whispers of a dark whisperer, will enter into the fray and begin to identify those that are not lining up with what it looks like to be like Jesus. And this is a battle today in a move of God. A battle against this move where it's about deeds. No, they don't believe everything right yet. And no, they don't even look right yet. No movement of God in any of history ever purred like a smooth running machine with no smoke and hiccups. No. Every move of God is in a grinding battle against the entrenched resistance naturally and supernaturally and to move this movement into the next inch, the next increment, the next person is a battle. And there's three steps back, two steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, one person saved, another person saved. But every true follower of Jesus, though inside may resist the crowd and may resist the lines and may resist the bigness because the honesty is bigger is not necessarily better. But each new person rescued out of the kingdom of darkness means the kingdom of light is growing. Each new person rescued out of a failing marriage means one more marriage that's starting to experience some peace and stability. And that family that was experiencing at-risk children are now settled into a greater peace and a joy. And every follower of Jesus celebrates with each new person that crosses the line. And when this takes place, all across, let's talk right here in Cottonwood, all across Cottonwood, Families are holding together. Marriages are sticking together. Those that are caught in the bondage of addictions are finding recovery. And as they find such recovery, those that were sent off into the foster care system, which is in an acute crisis today, that begins to diminish as families are held together. And as addictions are going away, the crime level starts to drop. Every follower of Jesus that senses that this is taking place celebrates the movement of God because our whole community is rising in a level of goodness and beauty that we can celebrate. And so we have to learn how to confront the natural resistance inside of us that resists change and resists bigness to embrace one more coming to Jesus, one more new venue starting, one more crazy parking lot. One more, more battle to find a seat for four of us to sit together. Because it represents an entire community that's being transformed. And not just in our church. When we start to see churches and churches and churches all across the valley growing with health, the whole level of the kingdom rises. And people will start to say, what's happening there in the Verde Valley? I want to move there because I see the move of God there. I'm excited about a movement. Because every single one of us wants to be a part of changing the world. And Jesus started a movement, and it isn't over yet. It's picking up momentum here in Cottonwood.
Today, we're going to talk about something surprising. In a movement, you'd expect me to say, move, move, move. Remember Gomer Pyle? Move, 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 move. Oh, I'm dating myself. All right, so you don't remember Gomer Pyle. The sergeant says, move, 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 to the slow Gomer Pyle. And that would be the expected and maybe even the temptation of the preacher to give such a message. We need to move, move, move. But in the pattern of God's movement, that's not the message. And we need to understand how it works. And so today the title is, Do Less and Be More. Do Less and Be More. It's a counterintuitive message. It's one that... Honestly, for years and years and years, I needed to hear, but I didn't know how to apply it. I'm move, move, move. The more I move, the better it is. The more the movement happens. I got to just go, go, go. But I was a lot like, really, a truck, four-wheel drive, in really, really wet, gooey mud. And I'm more frantically pressing on the gas. And just the more I press on the gas, the more mud is being flung, and the deeper I'm sinking, sinking, sinking. I can't seem to get any traction. Move forward, move back, move forward, move back. I gotta get out of this hole. And down to the axles I go. And I've experienced it in ministry. And God just kicked me and said, you're doing it wrong. And then you recognize, and you know it to be true, that you desperately need outside help. It's not a human movement. It's not a frantic effort. You gotta learn how to do less and be more. So it's really counterintuitive. And so in order to wake us up, I put it together in a phrase on your focus, you can fill in the blanks, and it's kind of a wake-up, shocking statement. Don't just do something, stand there. I mean, it's reverse of the way we usually hear it. Don't just do something, stand there. So this is a very counterintuitive message to understand how a move of God functions when he is orchestrating it all and we are to yield and be who we're supposed to be in his presence so that he does the moving, so that we get traction, so that more can be accomplished in such a way that he gets the glory. We tend to think that we're the heroes of our story and we've got to make this story good and we've got to do, 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 make it happen, do this and go for this. And I live my life that way, type A, push, push, do, do, task, check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. And I've lived through seasons of frantic effort with no traction. And I'm in a new season where I spend a whole lot more time being and praying and learning that God is on the move, to watch for what he's doing, ask for him to move, to see where it is that I'm supposed to join with him. So this is a powerful, powerful pattern that we need to get a hold of, and I'm going to show it to you from Acts chapter 1. So, point number one, wait, wait. This is what we learn in Acts chapter 1. Now, where we learn this is that the epicenter of God's move, the epicenter of all of history, sending his son Jesus, has happened. He has been crucified. He's been resurrected. Flashpoint. And everything is changing. 
And yet before the people are to move, they're commanded to wait. But we shouldn't be surprised here. We shouldn't be surprised because faith implies waiting. It's been built into our faith training from the very beginning. The promise was made to Abraham. This is what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make you a huge nation, and you're going to miraculously have a son. And he had to wait. And the waiting went really long. And we go forward in the story. Um, his son's son has many sons, and they're the 12 tribes waiting to be a nation, and they have to wait in Egypt for deliverance. And then they're delivered. And then millenniums before the epicenter takes place, there's all these prophecies about the details of the coming of Christ, and they have to wait for the coming of Christ. And there's faith in waiting and deepening of trust in the waiting that's built into the story of what God is doing, and it's built into the story of our own lives of what God is doing. And after the epicenter, we have the direct command to wait. And so we read it here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He, Jesus, gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is this gift that they're supposed to wait for? I mean, what Jesus has done is done. What they understand it to be is accomplished and they should go. And they've been told what to do and yet they're supposed to wait. What are they waiting for? We read in Acts chapter one, verse five. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't understand all the ins and outs of why God waited, why there was, even after the 40 days of being with the resurrected Jesus, they hadn't yet received the powerful move and the empowerment of the movement. He's synchronizing it according to his schedule, according to his plan. It's really a beautiful plan, and I won't get into that right now. But they were to wait. And so we have to figure out what were they doing while they waited. And we have this problem while we're waiting. We feel like nothing's happening. And we need to remember that waiting is just deepening the process of not doing life alone. That we're waiting with God. We're trusting God. We're moving forward as we wait. And so here's the big problem. God has done all this stuff. And so we want to make our contribution. We want to make our move. And we do have moves to make. And we think in terms of, and here's the next blank, we think in terms of addition. If we can just do this and we can do that, we can add people and add people here and we can make a difference in that person, we can make a difference in that person if we just frantically go and make additions. But the problem is God isn't after human endeavor, human mechanization and social media to interconnect us, to make difference and add people to this growing network, which socially we have the ability to make so large and big and quick. He says, no, it's bigger than that. It's spiritually orchestrated, and you're thinking in terms of addition, but God is thinking in terms of multiplication. That's your next blank, multiplication. It's not a human movement. And so what is it that we're doing while we're waiting? Because it is a spiritually orchestrated move that's based on multiplication and exponential in its impact, we must be 
praying. Point number two, pray. So here's the pattern of every move of God. You wait, and while you're waiting, you pray. And it's not easy. I mean, it sounds easy. Wait and pray. I can do that. Wait and pray. But we feel like we're not doing anything. Listen, if you do and do and do and do and do and do, and it's all good stuff, and you're adding and adding, adding and adding, doing ministry, doing ministry there, doing ministry here, demons are not threatened by godly doing They have a heyday with godly doers. They had a heyday in Jesus' movement with godly doers. Demons back off when we pray. Prayerless doing and prayerless adding and prayerless frenzy is like that truck that's just getting flinging mud. And we start condemning and criticizing and pointing and trying to make everybody look alike and make it all happen the way we think it should look like and cutting people out and making square boxes and putting everybody in cookie cutter. And God says, wait and pray. I'm doing something bigger. It's not going to hum and purr exactly like you think it's going to hum and purr. It's filled with battle and smoke and sputters and people are messy and all different stages. Wait and pray is part of the process. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we read this. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They were told to stay at Jerusalem, don't leave, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. What did they return for? In verse 14, we read, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we must wait. (laughs) We must pray. Like I mentioned, I'm in this new season. It's unlike any lengthy season of my life that I've ever experienced. There's more confidence in God orchestrating the pieces and God doing things and prayer being the work that we need to be working on primarily and seeing God at work and then joining him as we see him in the move. It's a completely different feel. Not trying to make it happen, but asking God and waiting for God to make it happen and be a part of what God is doing. But here's another counterintuitive piece while we wait and pray. Point number three, B. We think in terms of do, but God thinks in terms of be. We're human beings. We're not human doings. Our identity is not based on what we do. Our identity is based on the identifier who identifies us as those who are united with Christ. And our new identity is in Christ. And we need to experience that to the degree that it transforms the way we view ourselves. It transforms our experience about reality. And we need to understand what it means to be fully human, identified by Jesus after his accomplished work so that now we have joined Jesus in a union which is a reality of being. It's mysterious, and I I could go into a lot more detail, and we'll probably hit highlights as we go. But I get this B from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my 
witnesses. He is not telling us to do witnessing as if that's where the emphasis is. <laughs> okay? No, the emphasis is on being a witness, which means that we have experienced the reality of this new identity we have in Christ. We have experienced the reality of what changes take place when we are joined in union with Christ and experience his spirit in our lives. We are entering into a new reality we can talk about as witnesses this reality which we are now truly experiencing. So many Christians are busy talking about a formality without experiencing the reality that they're doing witnessing, doing evangelism, and it's words, 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 and it sounds like move, 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 and you need this, and you need that, and you're a sinner, and, you're, and people are turned off to the do version that is without the reality, which is this is, this is what grace did for me. The religious people in Jesus' day weren't talking about what grace did for them. They were talking about, you don't fit here because you're not righteous. You're a wicked sinner. And we have been transformed by grace. We are those wicked sinners. And we've experienced such transformative grace that shifted us inside that we say, you need this. This is good news. This is such good news. You've got to experience this. It's contagiously good news. And we're moving the good news forward in a reality as we experience it. Here, you've got to have this good news too, which sounds completely different than the do, do, do witnessing model where we're trying to get people to get a hold of the right doctrines, instead of let Jesus invade their life and change everything, the way it's invading my life and changing me, in a mysterious way, but it's real, you want to experience this too, we're talking about a movement of God. So what does a move look like? Here's four quick phrases to maybe describe what a move looks like. God's spirit moves in, the pastor moves over, the people move up, and the church moves out. We're experiencing this here in our church so many ways, where leaders are moving over, new leaders are filling in spots, where we can multiply instead of add where the Spirit moves in, and we're talking about what the Spirit is doing, and now the people are moving up, and we recognize it isn't just gathering for a holy huddle and agreeing on plays and agreeing on our team name and agreeing on what we're like, but we're actually, our team is not here. Our team is a team all the time, everywhere. And we're on the move as we've waited and prayed and experienced the reality began to come alongside Jesus who's compassionately a hospital for somebody and we know we're to be there too. And Jesus in us is saying, love them, serve them as I have loved you and served you. Forgive them, accept them as I've forgiven you and loved you. And as we get into that move, it is explosive. It's faster than we know what to do with and it's uncomfortable and it's a lot of messes in the middle of all the masses. And we start wondering, what's happening here? 
But that's what it has always looked like when God begins to move. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And of course, the context here is that all the time he has come together, now that his hour has finally come, and he's starting to describe what's going to happen. He is that kernel of wheat that's going to die and be buried, and he's going to produce a million fold. And this life is going to be all over the place, and we're going to be needing to pray for workers of the harvest. But here's the surprise. He's saying, I'm not the only one that has to die here. You're going to have to die too, and as you die... Remember the first series of the year, selfless? As you die, as you take up your cross and you follow me, you're going to bury your life also, your dreams, your vision for your heroic, I'm going to change the world life and come alongside my dream and my vision in the way that I'm leading you because I'm writing your story. And the blank page that's coming next, you think you've got it all figured out, but just wait, wait and pray, and I'm going to start to write something new. And as I write something new, you're going to see that it's good. It's better than anything you've ever dreamed up or thought up and written yourself, and you're going to start to see that I'm a part of your story. I'm the author and the perfecter. I'm the beginner and the finisher, and I'm writing your story, and I've got a good story for you. Jesus continues in chapter 12, verse 26, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Here's the prayer I'd like us to pray today. Let me pray it for you first. Dear God, I wait for you. I don't want to remain a single seed. I want to lay my life down and experience your resurrected life. I want hidden roots that produce fruit. I ask for your move and for your power. I will keep praying and depending on your power. Make me a witness of the realities, not merely someone who is aware and talking about the formalities. I want to follow you and serve you. In Jesus' name and for his honor, amen.